You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Wheel Bearings, episode 120. This is a special one. Uh, Dan and Rebecca are both traveling this week. Uh, actually, I'm traveling. This is Sam Mabu Al Samad from Navigant Research. I'm traveling too, but uh, we couldn't all get together. But I do have a very special guest this time around, Mr. Edward Niedermeyer, author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Ed, welcome to Wheel Bearings. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so why don't we dive right into this? Ed, you've been writing about Tesla for what, about 11 years now. What, what, what got you started on this? Yeah. So, so I actually talk about this a bit in the book because, um, one of the, one of the things I've learned about covering Tesla, um, from a critical perspective, uh, is that you have to explain your motivations. If, if you don't explain, you know, why you care, uh, people will make up reasons. <laughs> and that could be, you know, the and fans will do, make up reasons. Even if you do, yeah. they will still make up reasons. Yeah, exactly. But even even the company um, has, you know, said that I'm, you know, or implied that I'm I'm working for short sellers or or that I am a short seller myself or something like that, which is which is nonsense. But um but yeah, so I mean when you when you say I've written about it for eleven years, <clears throat> I mean that's that's technically true. Um, but, uh, one of the things that's been said about me is that I, that I've been basically like predicting their bankruptcy or whatever for nonstop since 2008. So what actually happened is that I, uh, started blogging about the auto industry in 2008 for the truth about cars. Um, and the main project of that site, for those who don't remember, um, was uh, documenting sort of the decline and fall of the Detroit automakers. And so we had a GM death watch, we had a Chrysler death watch, and we had a Ford death watch. And these were sort of just a series of, of you know, kind of editorial length, um, thousand word-ish uh, pieces sort of just documenting the latest in this, in this long-term decline. Um, so in 2008, uh, Tesla started sort of making more news than it had. And uh, Robert Frago sort of thought that, um, who was the founder of, of Truth About Cars, that we should do a, um, a Tesla death watch as well. And so, so we did do that. Um, and as a freelancer, I wrote a couple pieces for that. Um, but I think it was, it was a handful of pieces um, that I wrote. And the overall size of the death wa- Tesla death watch was tiny, um, whereas the, the GM and Ford and Chrysler, like those were the main projects and, and those were the really big ones. So... Um, so I started the first time I wrote about it was back in 2008, 2009. Um, then I kind of stopped. I think I, you know, maybe I most one post about Tesla a year or something until 2014. I was at Bloomberg View at the time, now Bloomberg Opinion. And uh, when I was there, I wrote uh, a co- I wrote three pieces, I think, in 2014, two of which were actually quite positive um, and talking about sort of their, their moving beyond the um, the a dealer franchise dealer model and then also sort of about how they're sort of able to capture some of the excitement around the changes in the future of the car um and uh and then i wrote one more critical story and then basically what really sort of launched my my real focus on tesla was 
Uh, in late 2014, they announced a, a battery swap program and uh, did a demonstration. <clears throat> um, in December 4, 2014, they said it was open to the public. Um, by Memorial Day of 2015, I couldn't find reports that people were actually using it. And so I went down and, and really on a whim went and checked it out. And uh, what I found was, uh, indeed, it was not being made available even to people who made the drive between it's halfway between San Francisco and LA people who made that drive regularly said they hadn't been contacted, um, uh, to be able to use it. Uh, people said they wanted to use it because the lines were, you know, for the superchargers on a busy holiday weekend were stacking up. Uh, and instead of making it available, <clears throat> Tesla brought in, um, extra superchargers and hooked them up to diesel generators. And, uh, you know, just, there's something about seeing, you know, the, the quote-unquote long tailpipe of these Teslas being very, very short and seeing the diesel exhaust go up next to these cars um, and seeing that this battery swap thing was fake, it just, it, you know, it was one of those moments where I just like, th this can't be just a random fluke. There has to be more here. There's never just one cockroach. And so because of that experience, I decided it would be worth investing the time to really dig in uh, to everything that, that Tesla has done. And, um, well, the result of, of those years of, of uh, not taking anything they said at face value and, and really just digging in, that's what you can read in the book. Yeah, you know, it, and it's, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned this started with uh, the battery swap program. And, you know, there, if there's one thing that we've learned over the years, over the past decade, you know, with Tesla fans, you know, whenever something comes out that, you know, is really new and interesting and that the, the fans, you know, the Tesla customers are really into, they are generally very vocal about, you know, posting online, you know, in forums and yep. on social media, you know, like when the superchargers came out, you know, and, and then later autopilot and, and various other features, they are not, they're not shy about sharing their experiences you know, whether they're good or, or bad. And in, in a lot of cases yep. and, you know, for it, for, you know, there to be nothing, you know, total radio silence about the, the battery swap program. And I remember I watched that, that presentation when, when Elon announced that, you know, that was, that was a, that was a pretty interesting presentation that, you know, that was one, one of the, one of the relatively early ones. I mean, he had some before that, that all, of, all of his presentations have always been a little, um, uh, awkward, you know, he, he's, he's not, he's definitely not a Steve jobs type on stage, which is right. uh, kind of interesting, but watching that one, you know, they, they, uh, they showed video. I think they had a video of, um, an Audi a eight being fueled up, you know, pulling up to a gas pump and, you know, the driver getting out, fueling it up. And yep. at, at the same time in sync, they showed, um, you know, a model S coming up on stage over their, their prototype swap mechanism you know, swapping the battery out, you know, getting a new battery, rolling off the stage. And he said, you know, we still looks like we've still got some time as the, the, the Audi was still being uh, filled up. They pulled another one up and did the same thing again. You know, they did they swapped two batteries in the time it took to fill the gas tank in the Audi. Yep. And then after that, as you said, nothing happened. And yeah. you know, what what was the you know, what was the story behind that? I mean, what 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 was actually going on? Yeah. So um so basically what had happened was that the the rules and and I sort of found this out once I once I sort of saw that it wasn't really real I was I was trying to answer this question right why why do this um and uh, the rules for the the California Air Resources Board's zero emission vehicle program um had been changed and basically what that change entailed was and I I think this originally I haven't traced the roots of this policy change but I think it had something to do with um hydrogen uh, you know, there, there's all, there's been this battle between hydrogen and battery electric vehicles for, for position for subsidies, basically, and, um, and, and basically there'd been this credit added that said, you know, uh, it, you could double, it's just, just shy of doubling uh, the number of credits per car, if you demonstrate the capability of recharging, like I think it was like 80% of battery in under 10 minutes or something like that. I don't quote me on the the details, but, um, but. So, and, and what was interesting about that is that the way the credits were, the, the way this was written, 
They just had to demonstrate the capability to CARB board members. And I assume they were at that demonstration. I'm not aware of another demonstration of the system. By the way, it was also interesting uh, that that demonstration took place. Uh, the mechanism, to the extent that there was one, was behind a curtain. And they said it was fully automated, but there was no way of of checking that, uh, at least in the context of that demonstration. And so by demonstrating it once to the board members, every car they sold uh, automatically got double credits because it was supposedly, you know, they were capable of it. And what's interesting is, is that um, as I was sort of working on this story, I, I ended up, well, actually it was a follow-up story. I, I ended up speaking with um, some of the policy uh uh, people, the staff members for CARB. Um, and one of them told me that they had warned the board members that like, look, you know, the way this policy is written opens us up to be taken advantage of here, right? The point of this, of this extra credit is to incentivize the deployment of new technologies to solve the problem that EV battery EVs have, which is that it takes so long to charge. And what the way these policies are written, we're not incentivizing them to deploy the technology, we're incentivizing them to say the technology exists and then never do anything with it. And that's exactly what happened. And what was really interesting is, is that uh, this staffer was told by at least one board member that, uh, you know what, it's okay. That's not a, that's not a, uh, something that we need to fix right away. Um, and I think, you know, anybody is familiar with uh, the interaction between car companies and Regulators and and <laughs> lawmakers, you know, uh, local politicians love local local automakers, right? It's it's a big building with a lot of people in it. It's jobs. It's all these other things. And I think it's you know it's another example of you know you can go into something with the best intentions, but if ultimately one company that you're that you're regulating or um, or passing laws about or policy about uh, is based in your state or your, your jurisdiction and making a lot of jobs in that area, uh, there's going to always be incentives to, uh, to sort of, you know, put a finger on the scale in their favor. Fortunately, we've never had that problem in Michigan. The Michigan uh, state <laughs> government has never done anything to favor the, uh, the Detroit automakers. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, I think, you know, what they were trying to do is, you know the you know the they have the carb you know has, has had this zev mandate you know which was pushing the supply side of the equation you know pushing manufacturers to to build evs and and get them into the marketplace or build zero emission vehicles rather and get them into the marketplace but you know part of the the rationale for this um fast refueling recharging capability um for you know for having those extra credits is to incentivize the demand side, you know, because one of the issues that consumers have had is, you know, like you said, that that hassle of having to wait around for a car to be charged, uh, you know, waiting around for, at, you know, in those days, you know, it was typically hours, many hours, you know, to or or days in some cases to be charged, yeah. and you know, I think they they figured if we can get you know battery swap capability or hydrogen refueling that can you can do in a few minutes out there into the marketplace that would incentivize consumers to buy these vehicles. So you, you deal with the demand side as well. Yeah. Uh, but you know, as, as you said, they, you know, unfortunately the way they did the regulation, they didn't actually, they didn't go far enough, you know, in terms of ensuring that, you know, it wasn't just a matter of the, the technology being available, but, or the technology existing, but that making sure that it was actually readily available. Right. And, and so, you know, how, how did that, you know, by giving those double credits for having that capability, how did that actually benefit Tesla? So it's impossible to quantify because the um, actual transactions of these credits. So when a company, I think Fiat Chrysler was kind of buying a lot of Tesla's credits at the time, um, but we don't know what price they were buying them for. So what we do know is that the fine for uh, each credit that you need but don't have, I think it was $5,000 per credit. And um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but but basically when I when I did do the math, um, based on that number, so assuming that and and you know in theory an automaker would probably pay a little bit less than the fine because otherwise they could just pay the fine and the money doesn't go to a competitor. Although they weren't thinking of Tesla as a competitor at that time, um, but uh, it was 
into the hundreds of millions of dollars if if you talk about you know something close to five thousand per credit, uh, certainly tens of millions of dollars, and that's really important because you know every time that Tesla has shown a quarterly profit, there's not that many times. Um, I think well, except, a total of three so far. Yeah, yeah. So well, I, yeah, three or four, I think, because um, I think there were two last year. Um, but and then I think there it, was only one quarter before that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. And anyway, they've they've always relied on these credits to make their profits. Um, that you take those credits away, and uh, they their profitable quarters would not have been profitable, and their sort of their losses would have been even even worse. And so for me. It was a technological facade that was propping up a financial facade. Yeah. So, but you know, as you say, you know, in their in their financial reports, they don't break out how much they get for each credit, but they do. They have broken out, you know, the total aggregate amount of cash they they brought in in a quarter from sales of credits, and a, a number of manu- a number of other automakers have bought credits from Tesla um, because they've had it. A substantial. They've had the biggest supply of them because they've sold more EVs than anyone here. So, and and they sell a hundred percent of the vehicles they sell are EVs. That's really the key. They don't. They have yeah. nothing to offset with those credits. They have no use for those credits other than to sell them. Right. So you know, I think what's what's interesting about this book, um, you know, is that it for the most part it's not really focused on Elon Musk. It's actually, you know, you're, you're more focused on the company and kind of the company as a whole. And I think, you know, I, as I wrote in the, the review I wrote for Forbes, you know, I think that fans of Tesla probably aren't going to like it because you do say negative things about them, but you also give them credit for, for the things they've done right. Um, you know, and t- talk a little bit more about, you know, what, you know, what, what has Tesla done right in your eyes? Yeah, so I mean, um, that was uh, I, I'm glad that people feel that that the um, the book does give them credit because, you know, when I started writing this um, in 2016, or when I sort of decided to write this book, like right after that, um, I'd published a story that that Tesla had attacked me for in a blog post, and this blog post is still up, and it calls me a a short or implies that I'm I'm short and it was just very personal saying that I make stuff up I made this story up and stuff and and so when I started writing the book um I was pretty angry and pretty like worked up about about it I just our, my relationship with the company was uh really at its low point <clears throat> and I think what was great about well what was good about about writing the book it wasn't always enjoyable but it was a way to uh sort of process my thoughts and feelings about the company. Um, and I think that, you know, sort of therapeutic aspect of writing helped sort of, you know, it didn't, it doesn't take away from the, the sort of critical points that I make. Those are all, you know, I feel very strongly about those, but, but yeah, I think it is really important to recognize that they have done a lot of good. Um, and, uh, it's just that, that, you know, the good doesn't erase the bad. Right. And so, so the good is, um, I mean, you know, the drivetrain technology for starters, right? It's just the best. Like there's not better battery electric drivetrain technology out there. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been able to develop it uh, very fast and they've been able to develop their cars very fast, uh, uh, relatively affordably too. Like when you think about what it costs to develop a, a new platform and a new car, I mean, they they their development costs are, are very cheap. Um, and, uh, and especially for, you know, the sort of performance that they've, they've done. But I think really, uh, the, the core of what Tesla has been able to accomplish is in just reinvigorating, uh, the idea of cars and just the, the place that cars play in our world. Um, the way I look at it, you know, um, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, Detroit was, to society, American society then, what Silicon Valley is now, right? Which is the sort of preeminent place that if you're a, a hotshot, you know, that's where you want to go. They're making huge amounts of money. They're on top of the world, uh, doing really well. And and critically, they are sort of the part of the economy that is most showing the public what the future is going to be or what the future could be. And I think that, you know, over the last, you know, since the 70s, basically, the auto industry has really lost a lot of that. Um, it's 
it, it's become a much more mature business. And uh, obviously, it's a very competitive business. And uh, the market has also, I think, shifted to some extent. And maybe this just goes along with the maturity of the technology, but to a more sort of commodity business where people buy cars more to get from point A to point B than they do to, you know, symbolize who they are. And and what Tesla has done is that they've been able to make a product that you can buy, a car that you can buy that makes you feel like you're a step ahead of everyone into the future. Um, at least when everything's working well, which is the, <laughs> it gets into the bad. Um, and, and I think also it gives people who are part of Silicon Valley, and, and I think it's easy to forget, there's a lot of people have made a lot of money in this giant technological transformation uh, over the past, you know, 20 years. You can trace it back farther. But, um, and, and yet there hasn't been a car that if you're, you know, a guy who just sold his startup and for a bunch of money and you want a car that symbolizes you and the, and the place that technology holds in your life and then also in society and in the world. You know, Tesla, people didn't know that that was something that wasn't there until Tesla provided it. And and once they provided it, it's like, yeah, how was there not, how were car companies not trying to appeal to techies more before that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, you know, to see the the influence that, you know, this relatively small company, you know, and I say small in terms of, you know their their total share of the market right. um, have such a huge, you know, in just ten years, you know, develop such a huge mind share, and the way that it's influenced the whole industry, you know, in when I, you know, when I first started writing about the industry, you know, when I shifted from being an engineer to being a writer, you know, at that point, EVs, you know, or you know, we were just coming off of the kind of the the first wave of EVs from the original California ZEV mandate. Yep. And, you know, those cars, they were interesting, especially the, the, the GM EV1 was, was, you know, it made some, some interesting advances, but, you know, we we're still relying on pretty um, old or, or pretty um, poor battery technology, yep. you know, at least in terms of trying to do a, a full electric vehicle. You know, nickel metal hydride batteries were still comparatively new at that time. We were using those in hybrids, and they worked fine in that kind of application. But, you know, nobody was really using lithium ion yet. And, you know, it was really, you know, the early part of the early 2000s, you know, when I think AC propulsion, you know, really first demonstrated the potential of this, you know. And then Martin Eberhard and and then Elon, uh, you know, came along and and found, you know, uh, learned about this and, and, you know, got this whole thing, this whole enterprise going and, and showed the world that, yes, this, you know, the, the electric vehicle could be something much more than a glorified golf cart. And I think, you know, the EV1 also demonstrated that, but it didn't really have the, the, the kind of capability that, um, that was proven with, uh, with the Roadster and then the Model S. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it, Tesla deserves huge credit for really shifting attitudes towards EVs to something that could really be a, appealing as a, you know, in the way that cars were appealing in the 1950s and sixties, yep. you know, without even without the, the environmental part of it, just, you know, looking at here's a car that is fast and good looking and, you know, has, has some neat features to it. And, you know, that, that was really appealing and it's on its own merits yeah. and, and, and really has shifted the industry. Yeah, no, and and you know Martin Eberhardt was really in when the the company first started before Elon Musk got involved. It was uh, Martin Eberhardt and, and a guy called Mark Tarpening, and mm -hmm. and Eberhardt really did sort of the technical specs for what he wanted the car to be. And while he was working on that, um, Mark Tarpening did market research essentially. And what he what he found, and and it's one of those things that in retrospect you look at it and you smack yourself on the forehead because it it seems so obvious, but at the time in California where they both lived, and these were both guys who had sold you know a a, a company that basically you know had developed what was the one of the earliest e-readers, um, and they made quite a bit of money, and and they looked around in the neighborhoods they were living in in Palo Alto and places like that, and they would see really expensive cars, Porsches and Ferraris and things like that. And they would have a Toyota Prius next to it. And the, you know, the Toyota Prius, if you cast your mind back to those ancient, ancient days, um, you know, there was, that was the green car, right? That was it. And yet 
it wasn't a car that was designed to appeal to wealthy people and to be a status symbol, really. It was a very Toyota project of like, let's just make a good hybrid car that makes sense and is practical. Um, and I think in retrospect, the fact that, frankly, that Toyota didn't do more to really sort of, you know, position hybrids earlier as a, uh, a premium thing and as something that really uh, says something about you and who you are uh, and what you value in a car. Um, and then certainly that nobody else saw that that opportunity, you know, to build something that was, you know, a clean car, a green car, but that wasn't just a little hatchback or commuter. Because that was the problem with the EV1 and, and a whole bunch of other cars that were tried, uh, especially early electric cars, is that they were expensive, which everyone thought that was the problem. The problem wasn't that they were expensive, though. It was that they were expensive cars that looked like cheap, crummy cars. And if you just make an expensive car, an expensive electric car that looks and feels like it should be expensive, that's actually, that was, that was the way to do it. And again, in retrospect, it seems so obvious, but it just wasn't at all. And, and yeah, Tesla showed the way there. Yeah, you know, they, they showed that way, but, you know, they, at the same time, you know, I think they, I think one, one of the issues, you know, that you point out in the book and, you know, that I've often pointed out over the past dozen years or so is that that you know it's one thing to to take you know these new ideas and say yeah we we need to do these new ideas you know and i think one one of elon musk's fundamental flaws is the idea that you have to do everything from first principles you know he, yeah. he constantly constantly talk, likes to talk about first principles and that's fine up to a point but you know one of the things i learned over the years as an engineer is that first principles only get you so far. You know, when when you're when you're doing, you know, you do basic equations in physics, you know, and and that's what Elon's uh degree is in. He's a he's got a degree in physics, you know, not right. in engineering. Yep. And you know, that they're they're very different uh disciplines. Yeah. You know, it, you know, engineering is about, you know, science, you know, physics and and other science uh areas are about understanding how the world works. You know, what are, what are the, the principles that make the world work? Engineering is about taking those those principles and applying it to solve real-world problems. But, you know, one of the things that you find when you go from one to the other is that the real world it tends to be much more complex and much more variable than than the equations that you learn in, in a physics class, uh, you know, lead you to believe, you know, you you, you tend to make a lot of assumptions in the science side of it. And, you know, once you get to trying to apply that, you know, now you have to start tweaking things and, and massaging it a lot. And, you know, when you're doing everything from first principles, you know, it can, it can be valuable to go back and look at what have we done before? What are the lessons we learned before? And how can we avoid having to relearn those lessons? You know, how can we apply, mix that with the, the good new stuff and I think that's that's where you know where Tesla has often fallen on its face is you know ignoring those lessons of the past and you know one of the areas you get into in the book is you know the Toyota production system. Yeah, yeah, no, and and um, that's kind of the the really fascinating thing to me is that all the people who have been involved in Tesla are are really smart, but like that that practice of before you get into something. You know, even if you want to do something completely different, at least really do a serious study of how things are done in that business now so that you really understand it. And it's amazing to go back to the history and to realize, even though Tesla's strategy has changed uh, in certain important ways, um, their lack of, of really a, a deep appreciation and understanding of what particularly car manufacturing is uh, has been there all along. For example, you know, now Tesla is a very vertically integrated company, right? So they, they build their own seats and things like that. And, and th there are a lot of reasons why car companies don't do that themselves for the most part. Um, but back then, uh, in the very earliest days of the Roadster, they had the exact opposite perception. It was like they'd read an article in, I don't know, maybe automotive news, but more likely something like a more mainstream story about how car companies were putting more stuff into more work particularly R&D work, onto uh, their suppliers and the supply chain. And they took from that the idea that they could be, and this is in the original pitch deck for Tesla, is that it is now possible to be a fabulous car company. They wanted to be a car company without their own sort of final assembly manufacturing. They thought they could just buy a bunch of parts, 
and uh, and off-the-shelf components, and basically it would all sort of fit together like Legos, and I don't know, maybe contract assemble it or whatever. But like they, and so from that, you know, even though they've they've changed their philosophy completely on the opposite direction in terms of vertical integration, what hasn't changed over the whole 15-year history is that they've just been ambivalent about manufacturing. It's just like, it's like, yeah, it's something that we have to do. Um, and in reality, if you look at the history of the auto industry, manufacturing is where things are won and lost. And Toyota, uh, you know, I get accused of being like, I don't know, people say I'm in the pay of Toyota or whatever. Like my, my perspective on this just purely comes from, from studying. Um, and the re why I bring up Toyota so often in the context of Tesla, it's not that everything that Toyota does is good and everything that Tesla does is bad. It's that they're, they're the opposite, they're mirror images, right? They're the exact opposite of each other. Um, Toyota has never really been known for having the fastest cars or the sexiest cars or even using the highest technology, the latest cutting edge technology. They've always been behind the curve a little bit on, on those core things, which are for Tesla core thing. And Tesla's the opposite. Um, they've put everything into design and engineering and, and the latest technology and, and the, the best performance possible. Um, and, you know, so you get totally different things. And I think it's important if you're going to do the exact opposite strategy that, that of, of Toyota, you know, you have to acknowledge that Toyota went from being a loom maker to like one of the most dominant car makers in the world in a relatively short amount of time in the sweep of automotive history. And you have to have a good explanation for like why things are going to be different for you. And I feel like that study, that due diligence just never really happened at Tesla. And frankly, if it had, they might not have ever even started the car company. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you know, Toyota, uh, as you said, they, you know, they, they tend to be a very conservative company and, you know, even the, you know, the, the two areas, you know, where they have been, you know, kind of on the bleeding edge of technology over the last 20 years, hybrids, and then more recently fuel cells, hybrids in particular, you know, those, both of those were technologies that they worked on for many, many, many years before they ever brought it to market. Yeah. You know, uh, you know the hybrid, the hybrid technology that Toyota introduced in, in 1997 with the Prius, you know, that was based on a concept that was originally patented back in 1970 by TRW, you know, uh, that, that whole concept of the power split hybrid. Right. And, you know, it, it was, you know, it was not ready for prime time, you know, at the time, you know, we didn't have the electronic control systems and, and some of the other technologies that were needed to really make it viable, you know, and Toyota, you know, picked up on those ideas and, you know, worked on it for many years and refined it before they brought it, brought it to market. And, you know, by the time they brought it to market, it, you know, it was, it was working really well and they've continued to refine that concept, you know, for more than 20 years now. Um, you know, I think they've sold about, seven or eight million hybrids now over the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I, yeah. And I think this is one of the things, right. So like, like the Tesla is a little bit of a product of sort of the tech sector feeling its oats, right. They've done, they've changed the world so much just in the last 20 years um, that, you know, we can get into anything and we can bring our approach into anything and it will do better. And, and especially, I think they looked at the car companies and they said, they're slow moving dinosaurs, right? They, they're just, they're dragging their feet. This is classic incumbents. And I think they never stopped to, to ask themselves, like maybe, maybe they, they move slow for a reason. And I think that's really what the book, in a lot of ways, what I really, one of the big things I try and explain is like, you know, the car industry moves slow for a reason. It's a it's a measure twice, cut once business for very good reasons. And I think we've seen, you know, the good that, that we've discussed that Tesla's able to bring in, but I think everything that where they've had like real serious trouble uh, has been stuff that's tied to uh, their desire to bring this like super fast pace to the car business. And it just doesn't really fit very well. Yeah, you know, you, you talked about, you know, the original pitch deck, you know, and the idea of a, a fabulous car company. And that, that really evolves straight out of the way, you know, um, Silicon Valley software development has evolved over the last 25 years, you know, you know, especially through the, the 90s, you know, uh, when you started getting more open source software and, you know, startups would, you know, they'd pick and choose, they'd cherry pick 
libraries and, and pieces of code from various open source projects and build them together, you know, mash them together in new ways to create new new kinds of uh, products, but always in software. You know, and I think you know Tesla really tried to do the same kind of thing in building the Roadster. Yep. But you know, obviously, when you're talking about a physical product versus bits and bytes, you know, it's a lot more challenging to to do that. You can you can do it. It it is possible to do it, but you know, you you really have to uh, take into account. You know, even if you're not doing the manufacturing, somebody is. Some, yeah. you know, you've got a physical product. Somebody's going to have to put those pieces together. Yes. And whether you're contracting that out to somebody or doing it yourself, you have to manage. Somebody's got to manage all that and coordinate all that. And when you've got thousands of parts coming together, um, you know that, that that's a you know it's a it's a symphony of of things that have to happen in the right sequence, you know, in the right place at the right time in order to get a, a working product out the door. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's it's fascinating to me that you know, Elon Musk continues, I think it was just, uh, I think just an autonomy day or whatever, just in the last few months, he said it again. And he says it at least a couple times a year, just like, oh, people don't understand how hard manufacturing and supply chain management are. And it's like, well, no, actually, a lot of people do understand, like the people in the business are very aware of how hard it is. Um, and I think it's what you see is that that hubris sort of crashing against this reality. And and to me, the the bizarre part is that he's been saying this for years now, I, and yet things don't ever seem to change. It's like the culture has taken hold, and it is what it is, and it's like he can't change if he wanted to. And um, and and in part, I think part of this also has to do with the, the financial approach, which is also a very software-centric one, um, which is that, right, like you can go out and raise a bunch of money for a software company, and burn basically all of it developing, you know, your product. And, and as long as that product reaches a point where you can then start shipping it, right, your your additional cost per unit is is nothing. It's basically all development cost. And then it's just, you know, control C, control V, you know, chunks of code. Like that's that's what ma the manufacturing aspect of, of software is basically non-existent. And that allows you to manage your finances differently and do this sort of venture capital based system. And I think what, what's been fascinating too about Tesla is that, you know, they've said, oh, well, we're going to raise all this money and then we're going to make this car and then we're going to make so much money off that car that we'll go and then we'll fund the next car, right? That was the master plan. And like, again and again and again, they run out of money and they have to go back and raise more. And it does never seem to occur to anybody that this is a fundamentally low margin business. This is not software where once you amortize that development cost, you're basically making 90% profits or whatever. Like the car business never gets to that point. Um, and, and, and so that aspect too, so it's, it's the operational, but then also on the finance side, it's like they're, they keep trying to it's like they think it's going to suddenly change and all of a sudden these Silicon Valley, you know, approaches are going to suddenly start working. And it's like, guys, this isn't a, a startup anymore. This is a 40,000 employee company that's been around for 15 years. Uh, at what point do we accept reality here? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the <clears throat> one of the interesting lessons that was learned by the auto industry, you know, very early on, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, was the idea of standardizing parts. You know, uh, you know, Henry Leland, who's the founder of Cadillac and then later Lincoln, you know, he he won the Dewar Trophy in, I think, 1906 or 1908, you know, by demonstrating that, you know, they, you know, you could do standardized parts, you know, build a, build a vehicle from standard parts and, you know, service it properly. And I think, you know, what they did was they, they had, uh, I think it was two or three Cadillacs that, you know, they, they brought these up, they tore them completely down to parts, mixed the parts around, built the cars back up again from those parts, and all of them worked again because yeah. they all had, you know, you could take a, a piston from any one of those engines and stick it in any of the others and it would work, you know, yep. or a camshaft or any other component. And, you know, th that's one of the way, you know, Henry Ford then took that, you know, into the mass production, you know, the with the, the assembly line with the Model T, and, you know, uh, you know, then it spread throughout the industry. 
this is this is one of the areas that I think actually causes problems for Tesla. You know, yeah. they're moving fast and constantly changing things. You know, and uh, you know, not only does it cause cause issues with them, you know, with um, trying, you know, with trying to diagnose problems on cars today, but then also providing. It's a problem for providing service parts, you know, and, and customer yeah. support for cars that are already in the field. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely right, and I think one of the the other problems with it is that it, it enables another or it, it's hard to say where the causality here is but but it enables uh the you know uh, a company that wants to bring a silicon valley startup approach to this to do what's called minimum viable product right which is where you know okay the product is sort of good enough let's just get it out there and we can fix it as we go and like again if you if you understand the manufacturing you know be, because where everything the more standardized you are the more efficient it's going to be and the more and the better quality it's going to be and you know in a business that that you know scrapes pennies here and there in order to make to make profits i mean this stuff really really matters and so yeah so and you see these ripple effects up and down and and what's uh, yeah so like in, in the quality in the efficiency of the manufacturing uh, and the service, also regulatory compliance is an interesting part of this too, because I don't think regulators um, can really. I don't think I don't know how they they determine a population. You know, if if a part has gone wrong, uh, or they have reports that a certain part is failing, uh, in any other car company they can say, okay, well that part's in all of these model years, and so we know the size of the population, and so we know what percentage of them seems to be having problems, and we can make calculations if those parts are changing all the time. Uh, the regulator can't really do their job either, which is troubling to me. But then, yeah, it creates service problems as well. Um, and uh, it just, it, it, what's fascinating is that, you know, people will say, I've been, you know, problems will pop up on the forums going back years now with the Model S. And, you know, I'll post about them and on Twitter or something and, and people will be like, or I'll write a story about them and people will be like, oh yeah, that's just a teething problem. Uh, you know, this happened with Model S, the Model X. Uh, now with the Model 3, it's a teething problem. They'll get over it. And any normal car company, you know, teething problems do happen. It's it's That's a fact of life. But because they are standardized in terms of the parts that they use, and, and then, of course, the parts you use affect the process you use to manufacture too. Because that's all standardized in a, in a normal car company, you know, your people get better, your processes get more efficient, your suppliers are able to to you know keep pace and and it just it's like a clockwork machine where everything works together um if you're constantly changing stuff then you may have a process or a system that was causing a problem and you pull all these resources together and and train people up and and make it work and finally get it going again which can be painful and then if something changes then you're you can be back to square one again and so there are problems you know with door handles and falcon wing doors and and things like that 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 you know Everyone said we're teething problems, and now you know years later continue to be an issue. Yeah. Um, so, you know, over the years, you know, since uh, since Elon Musk took over as CEO in two thousand eight, you know, he has been. Let's say, you know, he he has been at once both Tesla's greatest strength and perhaps its greatest weakness. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, the the cult of personality he's built around himself, you know, has inspired employees um, you know, to to do amazing things, you know, and and people, you know, people want always, you know, they want to go work at Tesla. They want to work for Elon Musk. They want to work on, you know, these changing the world, you know, and making making this vision of his a reality, which is great. I I'm all for that. You yep. know, make make the world a better place. Um, you know, but many of them often get very disillusioned. You know, in a fairly short period of time. And in fact, uh, I think we just heard today that uh, they've they've now lost their fifth head of the autopilot program in about the past year and a half. Um, you know, they they have an extremely high turnover. You know, but that that belief in in Elon, you know, is what inspires employees at first and then also inspires their, you know, fans and and investors to keep putting more money in. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, that his his nature, his personality of, you know, being needing need to be in control and yeah. be the, you know, be the micromanager of everything and being the only one that can that can that can make this stuff happen. Um, you know, causes that disillusionment and, and causes a lot of these problems. What 
what do you, you know, what do you think needs to happen with Tesla to really get it onto an even keel so that it can become a sustainable business? Yeah. So, um, I mean, just in terms of the, the sort of Elon Musk leadership part, which, and I really tried to make the book not be about him, um, because it is so easy to, he's a fascinating guy and, um, but you also can't, you can't separate him. Um, and I think, you know, I, you know, there's this, this question about why Elon does what he does and, and is he motivated about money and stuff? And, and really what I found in this book is that I actually don't think that money is his, his major focus. I think that, but, but he positioned himself as this central mastermind Steve Jobs type of figure. Uh, although even Steve Jobs was good at letting other people do the stuff that they were good at. It's, it kind of goes beyond that even. Um, and uh, he, he set himself up to be the, the hero of Tesla from very early on. When they came out of stealth mode, um, there were a couple of stories written about the company, two of them at the New York Times. The first one uh, didn't mention Elon at all. And the second one... Uh, it mentioned him barely in passing as like the money guy. And he was really angry about that. And we have emails uh, that he sent at that time. And he was threatening to fire their PR agency and all this. It was just like he was livid. And uh, within a, a week or two of, of that last of those emails being sent, he published this blog post, The Top Secret Master Plan. And, that, and, I, and I think that to me, it tells me that he's really wanted – Tesla to be about him from the get-go. And I think he's clearly someone who really likes the adulation that he gets. And I think by positioning himself as the, you know, indispensable genius that makes this company what it is, he likes that. The question is, you know, that might be good for Elon. Is it good for the company? And I think if you look again at the auto industry, um, it is the ultimate team sport, really, in a lot of ways. And, and one of the reasons Elon stands out so much uh, in the automotive landscape is because the automakers are such, are, you know, there's such a team sport that to get up to the highest levels, you kind of have to be a team player to some extent. Now, there are egos, and, and, but there aren't a lot of big, larger-than-life characters. To me, um, the fact that this whole sort of dynamic of, of Tesla being about Elon and about glorifying him, the fact that it's been, you know, central to the company since 2006, that is, that's the part that troubles me. And right. And we, we saw with um, like General Motors, for example, you know, they went through 40 years of just decline um, and it was extremely hard and it took decades for them to turn their culture around. Um, and I don't know if a company's been around since Tesla's been around for 2000, since 2003. Elon Musk has basically, you know, had himself positioned as, you know, this indispensable central figure since 2006, and culminating last year with, you know, funding secured, which again is, you know, for him to say that, you know, just say that stuff, and and there were no consequences internally at the company. It didn't shake the board's faith in him in any noticeable way. Um, there were there were there weren't changes. I don't think they can get rid of him. And so I I think you're right. I think he is their greatest strength and their greatest weakness. And as time is as time goes on, um, you know, celebrity stories have an arc where they kind of get built up in order to get torn down. And I feel like there's some of that happening too. And and I I think that to be a real sustainable car company, no matter which sort of strategy they take for that, um, I, I think that you know, Elon Musk has to at least step back um, from day-to-day -day operations, if not potentially leave the company altogether. Um, and I'm not sure that that the company culturally can do that because everybody who's stuck around this far um, or has been brought in, right, it's, it's, they've been people who can't say no to him. And so everybody, the whole culture, right, not saying no to Elon is about as fundamental a cultural value as that company has. And so how do they, as a company, move beyond him? What is the, their identity without him? I don't know. It's, uh, it's going to be a tough challenge. It's going to be fascinating to watch how, how Tesla develops over the, the coming years, you know, assume, assuming they survive. And, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've actually been one of those people who have long, uh, I mean, I, the, I, I've, you know, Going back to, you know, 2007, you know, I, I remember, um, you know, 
talking with my then editor, Sebastian Blanco at Autoblog Green um, about Tesla. And, you know, they were struggling at that point. Yep. And, you know, I, I told them that, you know, I would be shocked if they, you know, made it through 2008 without going bankrupt. And uh, I've, I've long been wrong about the, the timing. You know, I, you know, I, I still think at some point they will need to, they will probably need to go through a reorganization yep. that, you know, that leaves them without Elon. And I, I think, I think it is possible for the, for the company to survive. Um, maybe not, maybe not on their own, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe as part, you know, as part of a larger company. Um, you know, but I think, I think Tesla and I think their, you know, their ethos, you know, can, and, and probably should survive. Uh, yeah. Because, oh, oh you know, absolutely. I, th I think they've done a lot of good for the industry. Yeah. Well, no. And, um, I mean, right. So, so it's funny because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of Tesla fans like to say like, oh, if you, if you thought Tesla was going to go under in 2008, you've been so wrong because look how far they've made it. And like, yeah, like I, I can certainly admit that, that, you know, I thought they were going to go bankrupt in 2008 and then they didn't. It doesn't mean I've, I've thought that nonstop. Um, but I think what's really important, and this is a distinction that these, these people really don't want made. And I think it's important to make it is that why has Tesla survived in part? It's because their cars are really good in part. It's because their drivetrain technology is really good in part. It's all those things that people love about the car. Um, but, but really if you just look at the numbers, right? It's their ability to raise money. Mm -hmm. It's And specifically Elon Musk's ability to raise money, to go back to the markets and whether it's bonds or stock, whether it's from venture capitalists in the beginning or, or public markets now or the government even in between, um, that's really what Tesla, that's why Tesla survived. And so, you know, I think to say, you know, oh, you, you know, you didn't think Tesla was, would survive and you've been proven so wrong. Um, you know, the reality is that they've never in their entire history had a business that could survive on its own. It's always been their ability to raise a bunch of excitement. And this, of course, gets us to the, the full self-driving thing, um, which I'm sure you, you want to discuss. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, and, and they've had to have these escalating sort of big promises uh, in order to raise that money. Um, and I think to me, one of the reasons I think that we're getting closer to an end game for Tesla is that they're running out of those promises. And I think the, the absurdity, frankly, of the full self-driving promise, um, it shows sort of how, how desperate they're getting to come up with this stuff that they can go and raise money on. Yeah. And, you know, the full, you know, the, the, the way that they have been promoting, Full self-driving and, and autopilot over the last several years, you know, and, you know I know is a topic that uh, uh, you know you you talk about with your co-hosts on on your own podcast, Autonocast, which I forgot yep. to mention at the beginning of this with uh, with Alex Roy and Kirsten Korosek, which is a great show, by the way. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, you know, it's you know I think that they have to me I think that that you know that they have done a, a huge disservice to the industry, you know, uh, in the way that they have promoted that technology by, you know, making it seem as if it's a lot closer to reality than it actually is. Yep. And, and also over promising on the capabilities of what autopilot is today. You know, and, and we know that that has resulted in, in numerous deaths. And, you know, I think there, there's, a lot of you know, there's there's a bunch of statistics you know that Tesla has put out there that are of dubious quality to say yes. the least. Um, because you know the the you know it's Tesla is you know when it comes to autopilot you know is probably the the best real world example of the old adage of you know tell me which side of the argument you're on and I'll give you the statistics to prove that you're right. Right. You, know, you can you can cherry pick any statistics you want, you know, to make to make a case, but you know, without the context of you know where those came from and what they mean, what you know, what what is the background of those statistics, you know, it's not it doesn't really mean anything. And I think that's that's a, that's crucially important when you're talking about autopilot. You know, they they take you know very specific statistics. Um, you know, and don't provide any context, you know, like their, their claims about, um, you know, the, the fatality rate with drivers using autopilot being so much lower than, you know, the, the population the of vehicles as a whole, right. you know, which is, which is a meaningless comparison, 
you know, because all of their cars are relatively new, um, you know, and, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, aside from the roadsters, you know, everything that they've got is less than seven years old. And, yep. you know, the vast majority of their cars are less than two years old. Yep. And, you know, they're also they're, expensive. They're compar- yeah. And, and they're comparing to a, a field of 280 million cars, you know, that have an average age of almost 12 years now. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, and many of those cars, you know, don't have the safety features that are on, you know, even mainstream modern cars today. So, you know, the, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that um, there, you know, yeah, you have this this extreme sense of certainty, both from fans and from the company, that this definitely just makes it's just safer. Like we just know it. Uh, Elon Musk has called people unethical for questioning it and saying that you're killing people by questioning the safety of it. And and yet they've never been able to provide really compelling statistics to prove it. Uh, and that to me. Uh, suggest very strongly that that you know they don't have if they have those statistics you know the str- really strong meaningful statistics they would prove it and of course you also have the example of of the whole bizarre and still a little mysterious situation with Nitsa where they gave Nitsa a bunch of data and Nitsa came away saying that there was a forty percent reduction in in collisions when uh, autopilot was in use and. Um, through, through some FOIA work and uh, some really good analysis, um, these guys at was it Safety Systems—I can't remember the name of the company—but but they went. They proved that it was completely completely false. And I think when you have multiple instances like that, where you're putting statistics out there, you know, um, and they're just not true, the question is like, well, why? And I think I think the other part of this, you know, when when I sort of decided to to look into battery swap. One of the things that really made me suspicious of it from the get-go was that um, what it made me interested in it was that I had followed Project Better Place, which is a really fascinating company um, that, that was doing battery swap. Um, and what made me suspicious is that, so Project Better Place, their whole thing was you, you buy, they sell you a car without the battery, an electric car with no battery for $20,000 or whatever it was at the time. And then they basically own the batteries and uh, you have like a mileage plan, like a cell phone or something. You have a monthly plan and then you can just keep swapping batteries and, and you don't care who's, you know, which batteries in because you can always just go get a, a different one and, and the batteries are collectively owned. With Tesla, you know, and, and, and so they're the business model and the technology fit together. And with Tesla, it didn't make sense because it's like these are privately owned cars. If you take care of your battery and you go and swap it and you get someone else's battery, well, how well is that battery been taken care of? And I think with with self-driving, you have the same kind of situation where even if what they're saying is true, which it pretty clearly isn't uh, about you know what these cars are going to be able to do, um, the, their business model does not match up with autonomous vehicle technology. And you can see this because – they're having they're having to leverage this alleged or claimed technological advantage, and the way they do it is like these cars are going to go out and they're going to work for you basically when you're not using it, and this is it's it's absurd on so many levels. Um, and it it just it's to me and and I write this in the book. This is sort of how I I, I see it is that they had a deal in 2013 with Google uh, to sell the company to them because they were. They came in 2012 and 2013 and early 2013. They almost went bankrupt a couple times, or were almost insolvent a couple of times, uh, and they were just burning through their capital because um, the Model S wasn't taking off. And um, basically, they had a deal with Google, and Google was going to buy them on very generous terms. And uh, they were able to pull off this miracle quarter where all of a sudden their sales fixed themselves, not just in that one quarter, but in one month at the end of the quarter, which is interesting to say the least uh they borrowed money to pay off the government funny how that keeps happening yeah and and you know then all of a sudden their stock went crazy and they became sort of the tesla uh we know today and and they said okay google we don't want that deal anymore um but right after that that was when all of a sudden elon musk started talking about autopilot and automated driving and basically at first it was like okay maybe we're going to partner with google and then it was like oh no no we can do it ourselves and we're going to offer like 90% of what Google's actual self-driving is going to do. And, and uh, you know, but you're going to, it's going to be in a car that you can afford. 
And I think what this shows me is that is that you know Tesla basically realized or Elon Musk realized that like electric cars they they created Tesla created the hot trend in what I would say is the early stages of sort of mobility technology, which is now becoming a very big area, and that was electric cars. But that's not a fundamentally disruptive business. And I think he realized, wait a second, a Google is further further along on this than we are. B this technology is more fundamentally and disruptive. We can debate the, the details of whether that's the right word, but you get the point. And, and, and I think he looked at that and he said, we're going to be the old trend. And in Silicon Valley, you always have to be on trend, right? It's like Hollywood. And, um, and I think that, and so, so if you look at it from that perspective, you know, ever since they've been just trying to tack on this appearance of autonomy onto their existing business of of selling high end cars, and I think that the 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 fact that the business that those two businesses don't really fit together, um, especially now that they're going down market, um, and you're having to sell cars now with you know radar and cameras and all this stuff in it, which is still not enough to do full self driving, but it still adds a lot to the car. It's just a very tortured situation if you sit down and think about it abstractly, and um, that to me suggests that. If it were real and they had the real capability and they knew they were going to have it, why not reboot the business around that instead of just tacking it onto your existing business where it doesn't fit? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, this has been a, a fascinating journey to watch this company, you know, since they since they came out of stealth mode over the last, you know, dozen or so years. And you know, this is this has been, uh, you know, reading this book and, you know, reliving some of this stuff that, that I've watched over the years and, you know, getting a lot of, you know, a lot of new details out of this, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic read for anybody that, um, you know, it's been watching the, the company and, and for those that are less familiar with it and, you know, whether you're a fan or a critic of Tesla, I think it's, it's definitely worth reading ludicrous. And I want to thank you, Ed, for, uh, for joining me tonight. Um, so what's, what's next for you after, after this one? Well, uh, what's next? I mean, now, now that uh, you're going to be a, a world famous author, you know, number <laughs> one on the Amazon list and New York Times bestseller. Yeah, well, hopefully. Uh, yeah, no. Um, honestly, I have uh, I have a great situation um, with. Uh, I'm in, I'm the senior editor from Mobility Technology, The Drive. Um, that's an area that The Drive hasn't really been in much in the past, and we have an opportunity to sort of create a new approach to covering that space there. And I'm really excited about. The, the potential for that, um, the the drives under new ownership as well, and that so I think that's a really exciting opportunity. And and frankly, it's been very hard to give it my full attention. So it's been hard to give my day job, period, my full attention while I've been working on this book. Um, so I'm really looking forward to doing that. And then of course the Atonicast that you mentioned. Um, I just love love doing that show. Alex and Kirsten are great, and um, I just really enjoy discussing this stuff. So I'm not really looking for anything particularly new. Um, I do hope, though, that uh, the book gets more people interested. I think the, the beauty of Tesla is that it's getting people who were not interested in cars before interested in cars. And my hope is that the book uh, adds to that and contributes to that and that more people get interested. And, and when they are interested, you know, I hope they, they reach out to me because I would love to come and, and you know, whether it's a, a class or a business or whatever it is, um, I love talking to people about this stuff. I love answering their questions about this um, this stuff. So, um, I you know, my hope is just to continue to to make this stuff interesting for people and uh, continue to study it and continue to discuss it. Well, uh, you keep doing that, and you know, like I said I think everybody should take a look at this book. You know, and and especially people that you know maybe new to the industry. You know, because you said you know the auto industry is is really fascinating and complex um you know and it takes it does take a, a a team of people to do this you can't have just one individual and i think that there's a lot of interesting lessons to be learned from this you know and and um you know i think people should uh, take from that and you know whether they whether they just want to follow the industry going forward or whether they're part of you know a startup or or an established company you know, they should they should uh, read this and, and take some of those lessons and, and try not to repeat the same mistakes again. Yeah, that's really what it's about. Right. I mean, that's that's people say, oh, you're so negative all the time. And and I really that I've never seen, you know, these sort of hard lessons as being 
as being negative. It's it's great, and I think. Yeah, you know, especially as the tech sector and the auto industry converge more and more, we have to know like what which side is good at what. And hopefully uh what this this shows is that you know, tech companies can be great at certain things and they've really kicked the industry in the ass in certain ways. The industry does certain things really well, and rather than one side disrupting the other, which has been the narrative for a long time, uh, or like this this, you know, epic battle between Detroit and Silicon Valley, I hope the, the people take the lesson away from this book that like you actually need both and that really people need to get over there. These two industries need to get over their egos and figure out how to work together. I think that's ultimately the, the real lesson. Well, and with that, uh, let's call it a show and thank you, Ed, for joining me and really appreciate it. And, uh, the, the book is available obviously on Amazon as a hardcover and, and a Kindle book. Uh, is it also available in bookstores? It is in bookstores, and an audiobook is in the works. It's not ready yet, but hopefully very soon. You're going to have Alex narrate it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. He's too expensive. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and the book is called Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.